Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. My guest today is Nicholas Tampio, professor of political science at Fordham University. Nicholas says it's time to ditch the SATs because the standardized test, widely used for college admission, corrupts nearly every level of the education system. He also offers other ideas for measuring learning. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Glad to be here. What's your main critique of the SATs? My main critique of the SAT is that it forces education at every level to be geared towards standardized testing. When you make the SAT a high stakes test to get into college, you're sending a signal at every level of the education experience that you should be learning these kind of skills that are tested on SATs. And uh, for me, it's just incredibly narrowing of the curriculum. It's just not encouraging young people to be creative, to try activities that are not academic. It's... Um, putting a lot of pressure on people to learn these skills, the, such as multiple choice tests that don't give them skills that they'll need when they go to good colleges, when they go to good careers, when they go on to life, when they're democratic citizens. So just in a nutshell, I think the SAT is really narrowing American education and not encouraging skills that will help our economy, our society, our democracy. So can you give me some idea of the type of courses that are uh, the SAT focuses on and the type of courses that you think they're missing out on? So uh, I'll begin with the first question is, is what is what's the focus? And I think that this story is connected to the common core that the um, the person who was mainly responsible for the Common Core, David Coleman, he became head of the College Board in 2012, and he announced that he was going to align the SAT with the Common Core. And so what what's happening is that the Common Core is a set of education standards in, from kindergarten to 12th grade in English, reading and writing, and math. And what what he was effectively doing by making the SAT align with the Common Core is he was just reinforcing the importance of learning these skills because it's going to decide for children whether they're going to get into good colleges or not. So my basic critique of the Common Core is that it has a very narrow range of skills that can be tested on computers. And so one of the key uh, Common Core standards is the first anchor standard for reading, which says that students must cite specific textual evidence from a text. And um, what that requires students to do is to read a passage and then answer questions about the passage using exact words from the text. So they're not allowed to make connections to their own lives, to other things they're reading, to events in the world. It's all just pure regurgitation. And now uh, with the SAT coming at the end of this experience, that it adds even more pressure on young people to to learn this methodology. And my concern that I've articulated in two books on the Common Core is that this is really leading to a very dispiriting education for young people, that they are, are not encouraged to think outside of the box. They're not encouraged to develop artistic talents, to uh, to learn public speaking, to do internships, to do extracurriculars. It's all just this common core close reading of, of regurgitating evidence from a text. And so my concern is that the SAT is going to become something like the Chinese Gaokao, which is this college entrance exam that puts incredible pressure on young people to learn the skills of sets. But it, it has all sorts of negative consequences in China, which you see things like when the Gaokao scores are announced, you see all sorts of suicides. Um, but even at a less dramatic level, it just 
it's just an incredibly deflating experience for the vast majority of Chinese students who don't get high enough test scores to get into the selective colleges. And so for me, there's very much this concern about if we make the SAT this this test like the Gaokao, that it's just going to kind of dis destroy the aspects of America that I like, which are that we encourage young people to express their voice, that we encourage young people to to pursue their passions. And all of that will go by the wayside. It'll will just become an educational system geared around preparing for standardized tests. So instead of preparing for life, instead of preparing for life. And so if I may answer the second part of your question, what would I like instead is that I think that uh, education is, should certainly involve things like math and uh reading. I mean, obviously, those are key skills for aspects of life. But the, the trend of the last several decades has been to get rid of the special things in high school, so when I, or K through 12. So when I look at, back at my own experience in school, the things that I loved were school play, cross-country team, debate team, the classes where I could exercise a little bit of creativity. So I wrote an international baccalaureate extended essay on the Spanish Civil War, an Italian inter intervention in the Spanish Civil War. Those were the things that got me fired up. And actually, I think those were the things that got me on my career path. So what I'd love to see in uh, American K-12 education is more opportunities for creativity, more for entrepreneurship, more for thinking outside of the box, more making connections outside of the school, uh, that, that we give children a, a chance to take the lead with their own education and to go into surprising directions. And the SAT works against all of that. SAT says there are these very narrow set of skills. You've got three hours to demonstrate that you've mastered them. Go. That, that That's why I'm opposing. Nicholas, I want to back up a little bit. Uh, the SATs were created in the 1920s about. Um, mm -hmm. What more can you tell us about the test's origin? Well, the the origins were um, 1900 was the, the founding of the College Board. And for initially, they were delivered to just a few thousand students to see if they had mastered the curriculum at a certain selective private schools up in up in New England. So it specifically was for elite students to get into elite colleges? Yeah. Uh, most of the students who took it were male, although a lot were for women. Um, and I think the school that was initially had the most applicants was for Columbia. And then I think about 40% of the initial test takers were women, and they were mostly applying to Smith College. So that's sort of the prehistory of the SAT, where it really sort of took off. The two dates are 1926, which is the first administration of the SAT, and then in 1947 with the foundation of the Educational Testing System, or ETS, um, which was the first, which was the, the organization that was created to design and implement the SAT. And so what you're seeing in the early mid-20th century is they're scaling up that that there was this army alpha test in World War One, where they needed to find officers and they used standardized testing using IQ and the Stanford Binet method as sort of a prototype. And so the idea caught on that, hey, this is a way for us to select the best from a large group of people. And I mean, I to anticipate a little bit, I think that remains the strongest argument for the SAT. That's why it's the hardest to shake it is because if you just have thousands or millions of soldiers and you need to identify officers, a standardized test gives you a, a defensible way to do that. But I think where it really sort of exploded uh, as a college entrance exam was after World War I when the GI Bill came and sent lots more young people to college. I would say the second stage of the development of the SAT is when it was used as a college entrance exam for selective colleges on the East Coast primarily. 
And so I, I came in at the tail end of this second stage. So we've got the early, we've got the early development stage when it's just an idea coming into existence, and then we've got the this massive delivery of of tests to to um, I think it was eight was it eight hundred thousand students in 1964. So a lot of students were taking it, and uh, one of its main competitors was the ACT, which was mostly for the Midwest and Southern schools, mo- mostly for public universities, but. My focus has been on the SAT, which is for the selective and the the coastal schools. But I would say we've entered a third area right now, which is that every student just about takes the SAT. And this is a result partly of federal education law that the No Child Left Behind and then the Every Student Succeeds Act requires states to test high school students to see how much they know about math and reading and writing. And a lot of states use the SAT as an exit exam or as, as part of the Every Student Succeed Act testing. So right now, I think the, the last year, there were about 2 million high school students who took the SAT. And so uh, I think that the really the story of the past 119 years is just, it just keeps growing more and more. And one of the effects is that it's standardizing and homogenizing the American education experience. It's certainly uh, standardizing and homogenizing entrance into higher education. And I think that's a I think that's a real problem. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. My guest today is Nicholas Tampio, professor of political science at Fordham University. Nicholas says it's time to ditch the SATs because the standardized test widely used for college admissions is corruptive. Nicholas, were you not a fan of the SAT back when it was used for the military? Or were you saying it's fine because it was a select group of people, but now it's just gotten too big and too many people are involved? Hmm, That's a hard question because uh, I think there have been lots of critiques of the SAT from just about the beginning, which is that uh, there's all sorts of gender bias. There's all sorts of uh, culture and race bias. Um, Certain of the questions assumed familiarity with certain ways of life that weren't available to all people. I think that those critiques uh, had a lot of weight. But one of the things I discovered when researching the SAT is that Walter Lippmann wrote some really brilliant articles about standardized testing in 1929 for the New Republic, and he anticipated a lot of the critiques that I would make and that other people have made of standardized testing, which is that intelligence is a fluid thing. It differs for different situations. If you're going to be a police officer, that's one skill set. If you're going to be an elementary school teacher, that's another skill set. If you're going to be a journalist, that's a third skill set, right? So clearly there are lots of different skill sets that the world needs. And the the notion that we could have one test to measure for every skill set for, for Walter Lippmann in 1929 and up to me in the present, I think that's absolutely absurd. I think that our society to function needs lots of different types of excellences. And uh, for the SAT to privilege one kind of excellence has all sorts of negative ramifications. So, Nicholas, you said you spoke with your students in your article. You said you spoke with your students here at Fordham about their SAT experiences. So what did they tell you? So, um Well, so I I read the Princeton Review book on how to practice for the SAT. And then I asked my students if they could confirm one of the things that I had read. And one of the things that I had read said, read the questions first and then read the passage. Exactly those lines that you need to answer the question. So what the way that the SAT 
uh, reading section works is that you're given five passages of text and you're given a handful of questions about each passage. And the Princeton Review book suggested that you start with question two, read those lines, figure out that, and then answer question one. And the Princeton Review said what you absolutely do not want to do is just sit down and read the passage. And they so said, even the structure's off. Yeah, yeah, even the structure's off. And I mean, it goes unsaid, you shouldn't think about what you're reading. You should not enjoy. <laughs> you should not enjoy what you're reading. You shouldn't savor or ruminate or anything other than just smash and grab the information that you need to answer the questions correctly. So what what will happen is that if students will read these things, that they could get all the questions right and not have read or thought or could five minutes after they answer the questions, they couldn't tell you what it's about because that's not the skill set that's being incentivized. And so I asked my students that and they were like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, they all were that you have to learn the tricks because the fact is, uh, if you did the test in a normal human way, you wouldn't finish in time. So you have to learn the the test taking strategies that allow you to get the right answers as quick as possible and it doesn't honestly matter if, if you right, learn things if you learn things right that for the math tests there are certain patterns and you can figure out how to get the right answer without being able to understand the math or if you get 10 minutes after you take the SAT if you do a math equation that requires the knowledge but it's a slightly different format you might not know it because there's no reason for you to know the math or to uh, to know philosophy or to know history or to know science when you answer these SAT questions. And so if I'm correct that this SAT has ramifications for K to 12, then you're basically telling young people that you're not here to learn anything. It's just a hurdle that you have to go through to get to the next stage to get a job. And for me, that is a disastrous message to be telling young people. Is there any kind of special incentive for a school to say, hey, yeah, that's one of the reasons why we're pushing our students to take the SATs or we're making SAT prep courses available? Yes. So um, I think that happens everywhere. I think pretty much every school in America has an incentive for students to get high SAT scores that you can say uh, our students have gone into good colleges and one of the clear incentives is high SAT scores. So pretty much every school in America has an incentive to get their kids high student uh, scores. But I'll just mention that uh, presently, I, I there are, are several states that administer SAT to all 11th grade students. Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Maine, Michigan, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, West Virginia. So they all do it to satisfy the conditions of the Every Student Succeeds Act. And what's what that law specifies is that schools with low performing students are at risk of being turned around. So that school, what is turned around mean? What, yeah, it's 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 as bad as it sounds. It what it means is that the state has to have a plan for low performing schools to um, have to hire consultants, to have to uh, hire new staff, and one of the the more draconian. Uh, plans is for the state to take over the school and turn it to, over to a charter school. That happened in New Jersey. Yeah. Domingo Morel wrote a really brilliant book called Takeover talking about the effect. And, uh, you know, I think you're, I think the listeners will be able to answer this question quickly. Does this mostly happen to schools with wealthy white communities or, or not? And, and you know, obviously it's a way to, to really drop the hammer on school and his, historically disadvantaged communities. And so, um, 
So yeah, schools all around the country are are focusing on these very narrow range of skills. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, we've got so much talent in this country. We could be encouraging young people to be doing so many things. And yet that yet I hear stories about young people spending all summer preparing for the SAT. And I say, My goodness, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful world. You've got your whole life ahead of you. You know, don't you want to read a novel? Don't you want to visit a museum? Don't you want to get a job? Don't you want to fall in love? Don't you want to, you know, do travel? I mean, there's so many wonderful things. And I think the SAT exacts such a huge opportunity cost. There was in Georgia uh, a big scam that happened where the one particular school, all they did was prepare for the SATs and not just prepare for it. The teachers literally would tell you what was on the test when this was uncovered. The teachers are saying, well, it was mandated. We we had to do it and we had to find a way to get our students to pass. Do you think something like that is happening more often than we were privy to? Well, Operation Varsity Blues has really brought to the open how uh, common uh cheating can be. Operation Varsity Blues was that story that was recently in the news about parents paying people to take SATs for their children or to correct SAT tests for their children. And we so, just called it the college scam. Yeah. <laughs> it's bigger than that. Yeah. yeah. So it's Lori, it's Lori Laughlin, Felicity Huffman, lots of other uh, famous people. They're, they've been busted for uh, paying people to get them into selective colleges. And one of the ways that they, one of the services that they paid for was for people to take the SAT for their children. And so when Operation Varsity Blues erupted, I said, all right, well, this is great because this is going to give people a chance to learn that the SAT is a really disastrous test and should be, not be used for college admissions, or at least should not have anywhere near its common predominance in the in the college admissions process. Surprisingly, people didn't arrive at the same conclusions that I was hoping they would. They had, every, you know, everybody just con it, this scandal confirmed what they already thought. But part of the reason that I'm glad to be on the show is to sort of educate people and say, listen, that whenever you have a high stakes test, you're incentivizing people to be cheating, right? When you have one lever that can open doors or not, you're basically going to give wealthy parents an incentive to figure out a way. How can I make sure that my kids can get that lever pulled open for them? But I don't want to make that the crux of my argument because my argument is not let's stop SAT cheating. My argument is let's stop the SAT, that this test... Um, it, we've given it way too much power over the college admissions process, and we need to start thinking collectively about, hey, how do we recognize that young people have lots of different talents, colleges need all kinds of different students, let's figure out a way to come up with a more sophisticated college admissions process. Nicholas, who's would be responsible for the change. There's so many arms here. You've got the high schools involved. You've got the colleges involved. You have lawmakers involved. So whose job would it be to start to kind of say, okay, we got to come up with another way. Let's take this SAT out. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, the battle has to be fought on many fronts. Uh, if you're trying to come up with a sensible education system, you got to keep working on different points of the system. But one thing I would say is that colleges that are going SAT optional have the potential to educate others about how you could avoid the SAT. So right now there's this SAT optional movement. So certain selective colleges are saying, hey, you can send to SAT scores, but you don't have to. And what this could do is this could um, work for small schools to say, hey, we're going to actually read each college application and figure out if this student is a good fit for our school. And that's 
that's generally speaking one of the things that I support is that make the college admissions process a little bit more hard work where you actually have to explain why you want to go to this school and not that school. Right now there's uh, college often use the co- uh, common app, which really is very narrow um, set of measurements to see if you should get into college or not. And it really emphasizes GPA and SAT and doesn't doesn't quite honor the, the full diversity of, of talents and activities that, that young people bring to the table. But certainly I think that if we if small schools can show how you can do it, then you could consider how to bring it to other schools. So one thing that's on my mind a lot right now is uh, SUNY. I think SUNY is going to use SAT as the main device to slot students into different tiers of SUNY schools. And I would certainly say, let's make it clear that SUNY should not do this. But Nicholas, doesn't that run the risk of it being subjective or it being um, not quantitative? That's a great question. And I, um, when we scheduled this interview, I started reading more and more of the literature defending the SAT. By far, by far the most common reason is we need a fair and transparent way to process lots of applications. We need some way to decide who's going to get into Penn State and we need it quick and fast. We need to figure out a way for for a lot of these selective schools, like you know, like I was referencing earlier. How do you cut out two thirds of the applicants without even looking at their application? Just because you're saying it's too much, it's too much for us. So what I would say is that I would like there to be lots and lots of different types of college admissions processes. I think that having one one format for all of America's schools or the vast majorities of American schools is a problem. So I would say that my argument would take two points. One, I would say that the SAT is a really bad test. It's not objective. It measures this very narrow set of skills. It distorts the educational experience. It's not a silver bullet. Yes, it makes things easy for adults who have to decide college admissions, but that doesn't mean that it's a good test or a fair test or an objective procedure. Then the second point, which I would say is that why not allow lots of different opportunities? I I think you should really allow there to be diversity and allow the educational landscape to be really diverse. And so will there be instances of unfairness? Yes. But it's not like there's not unfairness now, right? It's just, it's saying that I would rather risk their, uh, being a really diverse landscape, I'd rather run that set of risks than saying we're going to have one size fits all college admissions procedure. But what would some of the ramifications be if it was open a little bit more? Yeah, especially with transparency. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. Um, and there's a there's a battle right now. I mean, what what you have right now in America is that students apply to a lot of colleges, and then they get admitted to a lot by schools that are anticipating getting a small yield from the the accepted students. I mean, there are a handful of schools at the very tippity top that get a lot of their students, but pretty much any school that's not at the top of the food chain, they're letting in five times as many students as they could possibly admit because they know that a lot of these students are being admitted to other good schools and financial aid packages and decisions are going on. I think what I would rather say is that I would rather 
design a structure that makes it feasible for young people to apply to a handful of schools, so not dozens, but handfuls, and that would require admissions office to work harder looking at each particular application. So right now you've got college admissions offices trying to figure out, all right, what percentage do we admit when we've got thousands of applicants and you know, exact, exact, you know, the point I was trying to make that there's just no way that you could uh, know each student who's applying. I would rather say to admissions offices, you should look at a smaller number and really hunker down and learn each student. So, yeah, I mean, the question of what is the ramifications? I, I sure hope that we would find colleges that would be willing to admit lots of different students. What are some of the other schools that are trying to make the SATs more optional? Yeah, yeah. So right now, the SAT optional movement is being led by selective liberal arts colleges. You're talking about places like Bowdoin and Bates and Wake Forest University and Colby College and Smith Colleges. And so all of these places are trying to figure out how to push the boundaries of of how you think about college acceptances. Now, there's a very there's a very cynical argument that says that schools are doing this to try to get higher numbers of applicants to boost up their selectivity rating. And, um, you know, that that might be part of it, but um, I would like to think that that's not the entire part of it, that um, schools are realizing that SAT is a very crude measure of, of student ability. Um, one of the things that I often uh, think is that SAT taught me to speed read and that when I got to college, I had to really slam on the brake or teach myself to slam on the brakes and just say, I actually should read this passage in the whole, in the order in which it was written. And I actually should think about it. And I actually should read it and stare out the window and make connections to other things that I've been reading or thinking about or experiencing. So, so it helps you retain the information. A hundred percent helps you retain the uh, information. I mean, one general thing that I would say is that I would really hope that college admissions offices can send a signal that doing independent research is important. So if you if you were to ask me, what do I think is the replacement for the SAT? I would say you should really encourage young people to produce things that say, this is who I am. This is the best that I'm capable of. And if you would like this at your school, please admit me. And so it can be things like um, a really fantastic research paper. It can be things like a scientific experiment that's written up, that it can be a, uh, a, a research project in history and something you do for the local community that's educating people about the local history. By the way, these are things that um, there's a, something in New York called the consortium schools and performance standard consortium schools. And what they what these schools do is that they help young people produce portfolios that they can use to college admissions offices. And I think that's I think that's the way to go. Figure out a way to make each person shine in their own way. And so if you use a combination of grades and um, I, you know, this is part of my critique of the Common Core, I'd like to give teachers more autonomy in how they design their classes and give their grades. But I think if you uh, if you looked at grades and if you looked at portfolios, I think that this would be a way to admit a lot of, of college students. Now, Nicholas, there's been research that shows students who score high on SATs are the same students with sharper cognitive skills that the brain uses to think, read, learn, remember, reason, and pay attention, which is one of the arguments for the SATs. Agree, disagree? And if so, why? Um, so one of the things I was reading about was, was 
one of the main claims historically for the SAT has been that it is a, a good predictor of college GPA. And so one of the things is that it said the, the reason it's a legitimate test is because it can help you accurately identify who's going to do well in college. And now, who's going to succeed later on in life. Yeah, and who's going to succeed later on in life. And yeah, I mean, it's debatable, right? Because it's um, there's a lot of ways people define a happy life. But we're going we're gonna to bracket that big question for the moment. Most of the literature talking about the uh, success of SAT, of predicting GPA and postgraduate success, is mostly produced by the College Board. So it's, it's you know... Skewed they, to begin with? It's skewed to begin with, right? They have an incentive to make to make it look like SAT is this magical predictor of success. But I would concede that there is a correlation between high SAT takers and young people who do well in college and beyond. And the reason is the SAT does measure, are you willing to do a lot of hard, yucky work to get a good test grade? My argument is that, yes, you're incentivizing young people to spend their summer studying the SAT. Why are you doing that? Right? Why are you doing that? These young people could be figuring out how to recycle more. They could be figuring out how to help the elderly in their community. They could be reading books. They could be writing novels. They could be acting in school plays. They could be traveling. There are all these wonderful things that young people could be doing. So to to tell young people, hey, listen, if you want to get through that door, you have to study this test. SAT does, doesn't deserve that power to define what young people should be doing with their lives. I'd like to thank my guest, Nicholas Tampio, professor of political science at Fordham University. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on the shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Yeah.